Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today because we get to talk about a fascinating book published by Palgrave Macmillan titled Feminist Afterlives of the Witch, Popular Culture, Memory and Activism, written by Dr. Bridie Cosmina, which investigates the witch as a key rhetorical symbol in 20th and 21st century feminist politics, activism, memory, popular culture. There's a whole bunch of really interesting things in this book. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author, Bridie, to join us. Thank you so much for coming and telling us all about your book. Thank you for having me so much, Miranda. Could we start Uh, off, please, before we get too deep into which activism. Um, Could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my name's Bridie. I live on unceded Ghana land um, in Tandanya, which is also called Adelaide um, in South Australia. Uh, I'm a precariously employed uh, feminist cultural studies academic. Um, I wanted to write this book um, partly it's it's my PhD book, it's the book I wrote that was based on my PhD, um, but the symbol of the witch and particularly, you know, feminist associations of the witch have always been really fascinating to me growing up. Um, I'm part of the generation who grew up reading Harry Potter um, and, you know, that was always a really um, important cultural symbol for me. Um, but also my mother was a Wiccan for a long time, so I had kind of more personal associations with it. Um, And then I was doing my PhD uh, at the uh, start of 2017, just as Trump was inaugurated in America. And it seemed like a really pressing and quite urgent topic to address. So um, it kind of was, it brought up a lot of things from my own personal life, but also from my life as a feminist um, and in the contemporary moment, what it means to be a feminist. So um, that was kind of the impetus for writing this book. Um, And I got to just have a lot of fun doing it. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that background. Um, I think it gives us some things to build on and pick up on as we go through. Um, And in fact, that's kind of something I'd like to ask you a bit about, almost a way you approach and conceive of uh, the, the content that you look at in the book, because I was struck by right at the beginning, you talk about threads and weaving as something that you brought to thinking through this material. Um, and I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about that metaphor and how you use it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always really liked the idea of uh, weaving or of threads or of cloth. Um, and I think partly that comes from my background in literary studies. I'm primarily a literary studies um, scholar and I've sort of worked my way into cultural studies. Um, and so text and the idea of um, like textiles and text, they all have the same root. The idea of weaving things together, of words being woven together is really intricately wound up with the idea of cloth and with um, writing and with fabrics. Um, So that's already sort of a really foundational way that I've been uh, trained to think about analysis. But I think it's particularly um, uh, compelling to think about Uh, women's and feminist and queer memories in relation to weaving because of that really, really long association of weaving and threads and cloth work and and sewing and embroidery as 
um, being kind of gendered work and it's gendered work that is often aligned with women. Um, so it is not only a way that I think naturally about most things in the world of different ideas coming together to create a new fabric um, or different words coming together to create a new phrase or idea, but it also I think had a really useful um, and I think quite beautiful um, underpinning in the way that uh, feminist memory operates as this weaving together, this stitching together of different ideas and different um, moments of different eras, different people of lives into this new fabric that I think is part of what's so compelling about doing feminist work where you get to make something new but you also get to find things from the past and the, the bringing together of those ideas into this new text, this new textile um, I think it just it resonates on so many levels, um, and so I think that was partly why I, I use that as this underpinning sort of metaphor of weaving, um, bringing together ideas and bringing together memories, um, which is what I use through the book. Mm. Thank you for introducing um, that. I think we're I, I often use the metaphor of threads in interviews, so it was striking to see it in the book, um, mm. and does give us I think a useful way to think about the rest of this as we start to put together sort of histories of feminism and the use of the witch as a rhetorical figure and sort of see where these overlap and entangle. So thinking kind of on a big picture level of the 20th and 21st centuries that you discuss in the book, what is striking to you about the fact that we see an uptick in the prevalence of the witch figure in popular culture at the moments of the 1970s, the 1990s, and 2016? I think the sort of the key thing when I was doing this, you know, I was trying as much as possible at the outset of this project to think about all the different witches that we naturally think of when we think about witches in pop culture. Um, and so many of them seem to emerge in kind of clusters. Um, they, there are particular decades that are just particularly witchy. It's not to say that there aren't witches in all the other times, but it did seem that there was this pattern of particular moments, the witch just emerges and she's everywhere and you can't get away from her. Um, not that I would ever want to get away from her. Um, and as you point out, I sort of noticed that there just seemed to be so many witches in the 70s, the 90s, and then again in sort of 2016 onwards moment. And it just seems such a, a clear correlation between feminist movements um, in the West in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, in the 90s, and then in 2016 in response to the US election particularly, but also to other things happening in 2016. Um, and it just, you know, it seems a bit too neat to say, you know, a feminist movement sort of reaches a, a high point again, and then we have a a resurgence of the witch, and I don't think it's that simple, but there is a clear still correlation between these moments of increased popular awareness of feminist politics, of feminist movements, of feminist um, thought and ideas, and of them being, you know, linked and brought through into more mainstream popular culture texts, and the witch is one of the ways that these ideas get disseminated a bit more, um, I don't want to say safely because I don't think the witch is a safe figure, but they do get disseminated a bit more accessibly. Um, so we see, you know, after the amazing 1970s feminist movements, 
we start to see heaps of witches, both good and bad. I'm not saying that every witch who comes out of these feminist movements is automatically good. Often they are also bad, and that's part of what's so delicious about them. Um, but we see this, you know, growth in witch texts, and then we see it again in the 90s when we start to have girl power and post-feminist um, feminist movements on a sort of global scale, particularly in the West, though. And then in 2016, I was just overwhelmed by how many witch texts came out in the two years afterwards, particularly in 2018. There were just so many, more than I could ever possibly write about, but it did just seem like quite a almost obvious correlation um, and one that has been made by many, many scholars before me. It's not one that I'm necessarily saying, you know, no one's made this connection before, um, but it was you know, just one of those moments where I was like, okay, the witch is clearly coming about more and more in popular culture and not necessarily just in um, feminist popular culture, but in, you know, for lack of a better word, mainstream pop culture texts when feminist um, activists make their um, voices louder that they can't be ignored. Um, and so that was the kind of starting point of, okay, how is the witch therefore becoming used as a metaphor um, or being used rhetorically in these moments? Why is it important that she gets mm. used in these moments? So before we answer why in these moments, because I think it is a fascinating question and there is obviously, as you said, some correlation there, but it's not quite a neat and tidy story. I want to get more into what we mean when we talk about the witch in these senses, because you investigate in the book that there's the kind of historical narrative, what historians write about, for example, the Salem witch trials or witch trials in Europe, in England and Scotland. And there's also a feminist activist narrative of those same witch trials. So there's a lot of kind of different historiographies going on here, a lot of different ideas of what we actually mean by the witch. So can you help us understand why the feminist activist narrative is the one that we see coming up more in pop culture and how this impacts kind of what we mean when we say things like the rhetorical figure of the witch? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was something that I, when I first started, I didn't really um, expect the research to go in this route. It was one of these things that I sort of I sort of started out saying, okay, I'm going to do a literary analysis of the witch and I'm going to think through all of her literary, literary implications. But I, you know, also did history in undergrad. So I was like, I have to be a good historian. I'm going to go and make sure I do lots of historical research. And I just started finding more and more that often the narratives that I had been reading in all of these um, particularly manifestos or polemics, often in the 1970s, but not just from the 70s, to be honest. You know, I found feminist polemics and narratives going back to the 1890s that have these kind of, it's a particular way of saying and writing about what the witch trials were. Sometimes it's even what happened in the witch trials in Europe or America, North America, um, that doesn't necessarily line up with what some historians have said about what happened in the witch trials. Um, and it's not to necessarily say that the that this was ever intentional, that this was ever um, malicious. And I think it's probably to do with the fact that given that most of the people murdered in the witch trials in early modern Europe and colonial America were um, people whose genders are marginalised, most of them including women, um, 
that that history is just not necessarily recorded easily. Um, it's you know not an inaccurate statement to say that most of the people murdered as witches were women, but to say that implies one thing to read in a manifesto that witches were killed because they were women has such a different political and ideological um, underpinning to it. And that's incredibly productive to be an activist and to be able to make that claim and to really sort of draw on this emphasis towards solidarity of we need to rally as people who are marginalised for gender. Um, And so therefore, you know, the feminist activist narrative of the witch trials, which is how I try and distinguish between what uh, witchcraft historians say happened versus what you would read in a often quite popular feminist polemic. Um, I try and distinguish between these two narratives a lot because they are intention. The feminist activist narrative is often the one that I think people become most familiar with, and that's the one that has mostly filtered into pop culture. That is not something that's unusual. Like I'm sure it is the bane of historians the world around that often popular understandings of a particular historical event or a particular idea or movement are not necessarily what you would read in a history book, but they're, you know, they're close and they've got a few tweaks and maybe there's a few errors, but that's just kind of what people know about the past. And it's not, um, yeah, like I say, it's not a malicious or a an ignorant or in any way a, a um, intentional changing of the past, but it is necessary to still recognise that it's not necessarily uh, an accurate representation of the past. That said, I'm not doing a historical analysis of the witch trials. I'm purely interested in what feminists in the 20th and 21st centuries are saying. So the fact that they are saying something that does diverge from uh, more uh, rigorous and, let's say, accepted historical narratives of the witch trials, that's just a a really interesting thing for me to dive into the politics of, okay, well, why do these more extreme, more polemical narratives become uh, popular? And I think it's because people like stories. You know, at the heart of it, humans like stories. We latch onto stories. And to tell a story about the witch trials in a way that's really, really powerful for your activist movement is... Um, productive and it's useful and it's compelling and it means that people will uh, stand in solidarity with you. Uh, So for an example, one of the things I noticed came up in, I can't even say how many uh, feminist manifestos from the 1970s that talked about witches was this idea that 9 million women were burned and you see it all the time. It's 9 million women burned almost becomes a like a a protest phrase. Um, There was one where I saw they said 8 million, but most of the time it's 9 million women burned. There's there's no way that 9 million women were burned in the witch trials in Europe. That's just not, I don't think that would actually be possible for the population to be sustained um, in Europe at the time. But that's such a powerful protest phrase. That's so um, affective. Like that really works on your emotions. It really makes you think about the history of women's lives and of other people whose genders are marginalized, of trans and queer people. Um, and, you know, it, it it bolsters a movement. Um, and so I think that's probably why that narrative has become so dominant and it's evidence of the success 
um, in some ways of those feminist movements that they can weave together, to use that metaphor, a past that had previously been ignored, even if that past is maybe a little bit uh, not supported by the historical record, we say. Mm. No, thank you for taking us through um, that that kind of tension and and why the more activist side um, might have won out. I think there is something about the kind of compellingness of the story that attracts and attaches to people. Um, Thinking about some of the intersectional aspects of uh, the figure of the witch, of feminism, to what extent has witch feminism mainly been white feminism? This is a a really, I think, important facet, particularly for um, contemporary feminists who are writing about the witch, but to be honest, who are writing about anything. I think it's just an important um, act of recognition for for white feminists. I'm a white feminist myself, um, but I live on stolen, um, colonised land, so that is something that underpins a lot of the work that I do um, with this recognition of... um, intersectionality and positionality with which feminism uh there's this constant tension where uh the mainstream narrative of what a feminist witch or which feminism is the the sorts of stories that become mainstream are so often uh people who are not marginalized in other ways like race and so as in so many elements of contemporary feminism, white feminism is the sort of narrative that gets the most airtime. Um, this is not to say that there are no witches or women of colour working in witches. There are so, so many, particularly in the US, black US feminist writers um, have done such foundational, crucial work um, that has used the witch as a metaphor um, so Audre Lorde, Bell Hooks, Angela Davis, all of these amazing scholars are writing about witches, but their narrative and their stories are not the ones that break through into mainstream popular culture. And this is such a, a disheartening um, you know, situation and one that really needs to be addressed, I think, but it's not one that is unusual to just witch feminism. It is one that is common to all feminism, to be honest. You know, it is a constant, um, feminism is not a uh, static thing. It is a constant process. It is a constant practice. And I think it's one of those constant things that feminists in the contemporary moment need to practice um, of how do we practice lifting and making space. And if you are a white feminist like me, stepping aside so that more people can take that space. Um these kinds of uh, higher or more uh, visible moments. Um, So with witch feminism, it's been particularly noticeable in sort of post-2016, I think, particularly, but very much so in the 70s and 90s, which I write about a lot too, um, and all the way through the 20th century, of just how much this really liberatory power that the witch offers, she offers a great deal of sort of revolutionary impetus and power, often that is afforded to or conferred upon uh, white women and rarely is it in popular culture offered to women of colour. There are, this is not to say that there aren't uh, witches of colour, there are many, but, you know, there is a clear um, 
a lack of a balance here that really needs to be addressed, I think, by just doing the work day by day. Um, but, yeah, it's something that I'm quite conscious of that, you know, if the witch is a rhetorical symbol for feminism, we often need to be thinking about, okay, well, which feminisms, who is being represented, who is not, how can this be um, rectified or how can this be addressed or spoken about? Um, so I think that's something that the witch is a useful example that speaks to a broader um, and ongoing conversation in feminisms globally about these intersectional dynamics. Hmm. No, thank you. Thank you for discussing that, um, because it is something that is still very much in discussion, as you said. Another area that witches are part of current discussions, but also, as you talk about in the book, have been for quite a while, um, is the issue of gender binary. So can you walk us through a few ways of kind of how and why witches have been used to mark, but also transgress norms of gender binary? Mm, absolutely. Um, as you say, I think this is another instance of that real emphasis on um, intersectionality in feminist politics. And um, the witch has often been used, if we look at how the witch is defined, you know, you could go back to the early modern period um, where there are, you know, more static uh, definitions of gender, shall we say. Um, this is not to say that those definitions accurately reflect the people who lived at those times. There are obviously uh, queer and trans people existing in that moment, but there isn't necessarily the same terminology that we would use now um, to mark that. But the witch is often used, in, you know, a lot through history to mark when someone has transgressed the borders of their gender or when they are behaving in a manner that is somehow transgressive and Historically, that has been a way to rein someone in to um, stop them from being authentically themselves, as it were, um, to punish them for deviating from these really strict binaries and um, views of appropriate, for lack of a better word, gendered behaviour. Um, so it's a way to punish someone who doesn't accurately um, stay in their lane in in terms of gendered behaviour and representation. Um, however, that very history, the fact that people have been punished for punished for deviating from these really strict and static and rigid gender binaries by being labelled a witch and punished, that equally is what makes the witch such a productive figure to um, reclaim and to take on as people, you know, quite happily and joyfully live their authentic experience in the world. So whether that is um, in relation to gender or into any other manner, but the witch I think is particularly a figure that's productive for thinking about gender, this sort of, you know, in the same way that communities reclaim language or words that have been harmful in the past, reclaiming the witch's um, gender deviance and her or their wonderful um subversion of gender norms reclaiming that as a way to authentically be yourself i think has been one of the most uh joyous and radical and often revolutionary ways that the witch is deployed in feminist and queer politics in the current era um you know where once upon a time calling yourself a witch was basically a death sentence you would probably be 
I mean, you would probably be imprisoned or at least taken to trial if you called yourself a witch quite openly in the square. Now calling yourself a witch is a way of connecting to community, of being able to link yourself to a lineage of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who have experienced joy in their um, gendered experience, in their sexuality, in their, you know, glorious queerness. Um, as a queer woman myself, being able to say that I'm a witch is something that's kind of a signal um, of my resistance to uh, heteronormative societies, um, ideas of what sexuality or gender should be. So um, I find it, you know, the witch, she may have once been or they may have once been a way to punish people for deviating, but now it is very much a way for people to talk about their pride in their um, gendered experience or their their sexuality or their joy and their, their love for their community, um, which is something that's so, you know, wonderful and joyous to, to experience. Mm. No, absolutely. And I think in the book, you talk about that being true, not just in terms of um, gender and sexuality, but also kind of some other ways in which older meanings of which or older um, connotations, I suppose, of which might be used and received differently now. So can we talk about the idea of witch as monster and how this might also be a productive space for feminist politics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way I kind of structure the book is the first half is where I think through the history and the theory of witch feminism, and the second half is where I do a lot of um, critical analysis of lots and lots and lots of literary texts to think through kind of common themes or tropes. And the first of the chapters in the second half where I start to think about common tropes or themes is the witch as a monster. Um, and it seemed like a really natural place to start because, again, I'm really interested in story. I think, you know, that's that's always what I return to is this idea of story or narrative. And even now the story that we're told of the witch, you know, when you first hear about them in fairy tales, the witch is always the evil one. The witch is always the monster. She's the woman in the gingerbread house. She's the woman who's going to use Turkish delight to um, lure in, you know, um teenagers in in Narnia she's this figure of fear she's deliberately um often grotesque which is quite glorious I find um but she's deliberately evil they are a monster first and foremost and that does become more nuanced as we get further into the 20th century and we start to have recuperative narratives and we start to have you know, gentler or nicer narratives or narratives that try and understand the witch. But I also, I do think there is definitely space and I think it's an important space to hold for witches just being monsters, you know, witches just being a bit nasty and being a bit evil, partly because that that is truthful to the story of the witch in terms of the cultural narrative um, of the witch, not in terms of the historical narrative, but just the idea we have of witches. They get lumped in as monsters like vampires and zombies and um, all those kinds of mythological beings. But also because it's true for the history of, of um, people who are marginalised for their gender, that if you resist, you're often going to get labelled a monster. So why not take that name on joyfully? Um, that already has been thought about a lot in feminist 
critique and it's it's an ongoing conversation as so many of these things are um the the example i would uh, think about the most is from screen studies or film studies and the idea of the rape revenge narrative of you know there's there's so many debates particularly sort of in the 70s when these narratives start to become mainstream on film of are these feminists or are they not um and those ongoing conversations, but I think they probably represent a similar um, underlying question, which is can the witch being represented as a pure monster be a feminist um, or can it have a feminist impetus? And I, I think in this case it probably can. There is something really fun and really um, nastily enjoyable, should we say, about watching a witch just be evil, just... You know, the glory of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the original Disney film, is not Snow White. Quite frankly, she's a bit frustrating. The glory is just how campy and nasty and joyous the witch is in that. It's the same with The Wizard of Oz. Like, people quote the Wicked Witch of the West's lines before they quote Dorothy's lines. Um, Using more contemporary examples, The Witch, the film by Robert Eggers, is such a glorious film and it's not representing the witch in any way as being good but it is still I would suggest a feminist film um and so there is I think this real power with just sort of taking on monstrosity as a productive and useful identity for witches of yeah I am a bit of a monster um because if this society says I'm a monster I don't want to be good quite frankly um so there is just something so much fun, I find, about monstrous witches um, where they're, they're campy and they know what they're doing and, you know, sometimes you just need to burn a system down. You can't fix it. Hmm. And as you said, the kind of who's doing the labelling uh, makes a difference as well. If we uh, now are, as you said, sort of firmly in the second half of the book, can you tell us a bit about 21st century witches and what you call a post-feminist approach to sexuality? Mm. I find, I mean, I think uh, so many wonderful feminist scholars have thought about um, post-feminism and what it is and what its what its markers are and what the relation is between post-feminism and feminism and which kind of feminism and are we actually in post-post-feminism and these are all such uh contemporary debates that it's hard to be able to make a firm like yes we're in this particular era right now but i think when you look at the 1990s and the early 2000s you can very particularly mark a particular kind of i don't know uh, affect or feel or vibe to the feminism that is emerging in those moments and it's it's one that is often um you know it's not to say that it's not uh explicitly interested in feminist um, politics, but it does seem to also often be aligned, not always, but often with a kind of neoliberal um, ideology too. Uh, and this is what we start to see, you know, the girl power movement or um, other more, I don't know, careerist uh, reasons for the feminist movement um, as opposed to the kind of communal revolution that we may be seeing in other eras or modes of feminism um, or feminisms around the world. And so I find 
particularly the early 20th century, uh, 21st century, I should say, and the late 90s, a lot of the witches in this moment do align with this more um, mainstream model of feminism or, or post-feminism or um, popular feminism, which is also a really, really useful term um, that I use quite a bit where, you know, some of the, to be honest, some of the nastier aspects are completely elided. There's kind of almost a um, mainstreaming and consequently a whitewashing of, of both witches, of feminist politics, of all manner of radical politics, to be honest. Um, and it's not that the radical side of things disappears, but it's more just that the uh, appearance of politics maybe becomes a bit more, um, that yeah, for lack of a better term, PC or mainstream. Um, and so there's stories like Sabrina the Teenage Witch or um, not so much Buffy. I think Buffy has a different vibe to it. Um, maybe Charmed, the original Charmed, not the remake. Um, uh, Harry Potter, uh, to a certain extent, his Dark Materials. But again, I think there's maybe a different feeling there. A lot of these narratives are interested in kind of in girls, which I think we talk about in a second or later on. But particularly in, um, you know, feminism isn't scary. It's a good thing. And the witch is just a really good example of that. And that is, you know, having said that the monstrous witch is really productive, that is also a, a productive model of feminism. It's not for everyone and it doesn't pretend to be interested in revolution for everyone, but it does still, it, it became mainstream for a reason. Um, it's not a particular feminist approach that I necessarily would take up in my personal life, but as an academic, I can really value um, just how much work that that particular era does for making mainstream ideas uh, or making feminist ideas more mainstream, which is ultimately, at the end of the day, a good thing. Um, so I think we see this moment um, where witches do become, they emerge again in the 90s with this next wave of feminism and they're part of that kind of movement of everyone can be a feminist, which they should be. Hmm. Thank you for walking us through that one, especially because it is still so ongoing. Um, maybe that was, I think, maybe the trickiest bit to talk through and explain, but it all it, it makes sense when you do it. So thank you for taking us through it. Um, I'd like to ask you about an aspect of the witch that we've not talked about so far. Uh, because I think this one is interesting for kind of the number of pieces of popular culture that it's puts together um, and has, in some ways, I think the sharpest edges between the different pieces. So can you walk us through how you examine the witch as mother to help us understand? You have this great phrase in the book, quote, the accretion of paradoxical mnemonic specters. Mm, thank you. I, your phrase, if it has the sharpest edges, just that perfectly encapsulates it. Um, this is actually the chapter that I had, I found the hardest to write. It was the one that I probably took the longest on. And I think it's because, I mean, in part, just like, you know, as I sort of said at the beginning, obviously I come to the witch via my own mother. Um, but I think this idea of, of maternity and of motherhood is wound up in the witch in so many ways, both um, positive and negative or um, 
spiritual and political and it it means you have to try and make so many different things match which is quite difficult to do um but that's part of what makes the witch such a expansive figure that she contains so many different um traditions or pasts i think the thing that i kind of tried to start with was the fact that you know i i like probably everyone just absolutely love virginia wolf and she talks about in a room of one's own how um I think the quote is, women think back through their mothers, um, which to bring it to a more contemporary example, I was quite chuffed when I was watching the Barbie movie last year that they talk about um, mothers stand still so that their daughters can look back and see how far they've come. It seemed to me like such a Virginia Woolf moment. Um, But Sarah Ahmed has talked about that, about thinking through her feminist aunties as opposed to her feminist mothers Um, because she's thinking through what it means to be a woman of colour and a feminist. Um, And the idea of the auntie is this really powerful feminist vehicle. But I think in this chapter, I was just trying to think through the fact that so much of feminist writing, even if you go back to, you know, the era of the French Revolution, we talk about Mary Wollstonecraft and her um, Vindication of the Rights of Women talks about paternity. She thinks about mothers. Then she, you know, famously also her daughter is a wonderful proto-feminist too with Mary Shelley. Um, There's just so much of a link in feminist politics going as far back as you can sort of find it to the idea of maternity and of um, motherhood and of passing ideas down or, or making things different for your daughters. And so that was a really sort of emotive uh, place to start thinking about this idea of the witch as the mother. But then the witch is also brought in to so many different narratives of maternity and that makes it, um, it complicates the matter, but it also, I think, illuminates her complete uh, inextri- uh, inseparability from motherhood so when we look at the idea of the witch in the early modern period or in um, colonial North America she's often talked about as being an abortionist um, which is obviously uh, not in any way anti-maternal but is in the same continuum of talking about maternity and talking about um, reproductive rights and talking about motherhood and then we talk about the witch and we talk about abortions or miscarriages that she causes by souring milk or whatever the case may be um we get this narrative particularly in feminist activist narratives of the witch trials and then you know it there doesn't i don't think there is quite as much um emphasis on it in historical narratives of the witch trials but often she's aligned with being a midwife um or that midwives were targeted in the trials and were accused of being witches far more than people in other professions and so again we get this link to maternity or to motherhood um, and of particularly women's uh, reproductive rights and so the witch becomes a kind of vanguard for women's reproductive rights and the movement for that. Then we start to see the ideas that come through in a more spiritual manner of um, the witch as a kind of mother goddess of her being somehow you know we see this a lot with Wiccan or neo-pagan movements of this link between um, mother goddesses or nature goddess or fertility imagery or anything to do with that and the witch is often brought in to these kinds of discussions too or if we think about um, 
more Jungian narratives, the witch is aligned with the mother archetype. Now, I'm not a, a Jungian person by any means, but I do find it interesting that she's brought into that particular archetype. Um, and a lot of feminists in the 1970s particularly draw on that idea of the mother archetype and the witch being, you know, associated in some way. And it just sort of kept on coming and coming and coming of how many different types of witch mothers there are, but all of them are quite specifically viewed as mothers, um, which was quite hard to square. It had a lot of sharp edges, as you say. But I think it's what it demonstrates is that accretion of lots and lots of different memories of the past, and all of them are kind of about the same idea, but even if they don't agree, um, they're everyone knows they're kind of doing something that's similar. There is something there about the witch and maternity, just as there is something there about the witch as a monster or the witch as a um, lover or the witch as a kind of sexual figure. There is there is some kind of sticking point there that she's often brought into these discussions or the mother is brought into discussions about the witch um, that I just find so fascinating to try and contend with that enormous amount of of competing or paradoxical ideas that somehow come together in this beautiful entanglement of a really um, powerful cultural symbol like the witch. Mm. No, there's there's a lot of things there. And I think it is really interesting to go, well, there's there's something there. Can we articulate it? Can we put our finger on it? Let's look at all the ways that we've sort of attempted to do that um, and mm. see what comes up. Um, but there is even, so much there that the combination is quite fascinating. Um, yeah, even to sort of I'd try like and to, think however, like, well, is it perhaps? Oh, please, go ahead. No, even to sort of think, you know, do we have to say, well, the witch is a mother in this way, or can we just let these really paradoxical moments um, sit and sort of, you know, is it our job as witch scholars to kind of sit with the trouble of, or or as feminists, to be honest, to sort of sit with the like, okay, well, these, these past traditions do not in any way agree with each other, but they're actually kind of on the same topic. So we need to sit and think about, well, you know, what's happening here, um, which I find quite... I think that's the thing that I hate coming back to with the witch in so many different ways is, yes, the parts of her will not agree with the other parts of her. Um, and that's part of the joy of studying witches is that they will, um, you'll think you just get a handle on this one bit and then something else will happen. You're like, oh, okay, no, that that's completely different. But you kind of just have to sit with the problem of, okay, these traditions do not make sense next to each other. But they are both absolutely witchy. Um, they are both absolutely associated with different models of feminist witchiness. And we need to, you know, find out how to reconcile that and, and move on from there, which I find so, um, that's what's so fun about this whole idea of the witch. She, she offers so much. Mm. No, ab absolutely. Um, and I think that that's true if we look not just at the idea of witch and mother, um, but also the idea of the girl witch, um, which I think is really interesting to think about continuing or maybe in some ways deviating from more historical traditions of the witch being a grown woman. Can you walk us through maybe why the figure of the girl witch today has so much resonance, has so much impact in mediating so many of these, not just feminist debates, but also sort of media, pop culture politics around the witch? Go. Um, yeah, so I think 
where I sort of started from with this project, you know, so much of this project has started with me thinking about my own personal um, discovery of the witch and, you know, it started with my mum but it also started with the pop culture I watched as a kid, as a girl and then as a teenager um, and that was, you know, the books and the films and the TV shows that I engaged with. The witches that I watched were mainly girls. They were Hermione Granger or they were Willow from Buffy or they were um, Sabrina in, in um, The Charmed Adventure or Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Um, and I think that's because I was coming of age in the girl power moment where suddenly girlhood was viewed as this really revolutionary and radical moment, this possibility for so much change. Um, but also I think as I got further into the project, I think a lot of the contemporary feminist politics and feminist media debates are operating around the figure of the girl. Um, and we see that not only in relation to fictional pop culture texts, but in relation to um, feminist activism more broadly. We see, you know, people like um, Greta Thunberg and I think her girlhood when she started her amazing um, environmental activism was a really fundamental part of why that was so important. We see in the US um, young girls who are activists for the regulation of guns um, coming out of their schools, unfortunately. Um, and so I think the figure of the girl becomes this really, really powerful um, model for feminist politics. And it's a feminist politics that is interested in the future. You know, when we think of girls, we not only think of them as people in their own right, but we also think about who they will grow up to become. Um, and this is, I think, why girlhood studies is such a, a really revolutionary and radical um, field of feminist politics, um, because there is this inherent future thinking that is tied into studying girls. And so girl witches, I think, are a really um, uh, radical uh, figure who can hold all of these debates about, well, what does feminism look like right now? Um, and sometimes it gets a bit, you know, almost on the nose. You know, if you've watched The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, the new um, Sabrina sort of reboot that's based on some of the darker Archie comics that's on Netflix, it gets some of the dialogue, to be honest, gets a bit cheesy in the way that it talks about feminist politics. Um, but I think that's kind of the point. This is a moment and a figure. The girl bitch is a figure who really can dive into these ideas of, well, what does feminism need to do right now? What does feminism uh, who does it need to serve? How are we going to do that? And the the girl opens up so many possibilities because of this inherent future orientation. Um, so girl witches, I just find such a sort of expansive potential. Um, Miranda Corcoran, who wrote a really great book called Teen Witches, um, that's just come out too, they think about this idea of um, you know, girl witches are kind of open, expansive figures. They contain so much potential for future change, which I think is why so much feminist politics has often um, brought the girl into the forefront of, you know, we need to do this to make it better for girls or girls are making it better in and of themselves and we need to help them in that fight. And... Is that what's so hopeful to you about girl witches? Yeah, I think it is. I find 
I mean, I think it's not just girl witches. I find the witch in all of their forms, whether they're a monster or a mother or a lover or a girl, whether they're um, an activist or whether they're, you know, a homemaker and bewitched, I find witches themselves to be inherently hopeful. Um, and I think feminist politics is kind of predicated on hope a lot of the time. Um, but girl witches, I think, are, are the most um, noticeable example or perhaps the most accessible example of this inherent hopefulness that feminist activism and that um, witches hold the, like uh, at the same time. There is always a hopefulness, always a we can make things better, we can be better, we can do this. Um, and I think witches hold that in and of themselves and I think feminism has that as a guiding principle and I think girls and therefore in this case girl witches offer such a kind of yeah it's that we don't it's almost a utopianism um of the future can be what we make it to be and these girls are doing it or we can do it with these girls on our side um and I think that's what's that like that idea of hopefulness I think is is fundamentally what underpins um my practice as a feminist but also as a sort of memory scholar of you know, we, we remember things from the past. We weave all together these narratives for a particular future. We don't do it for nothing. We always do it for a future. And so there is always something hopeful to um, – that's that's the drive of doing this kind of work, I think. Um, and girls are just such a beautiful example of that. Mm. What a lovely note to end the discussion of the book on, but not quite to end the interview on, because I do have one final question. Um, what might you be working on now that this book is done? Whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's about girl witches, is there anything you'd like to preview about your current or upcoming work? Um, I'm kind of thinking a lot at the moment, and it started because I was rereading Mrs. Dalloway after a breakup. <laughs> but I was thinking a lot about uh, pandemics and how pandemics are um, remembered, but to be honest, are not remembered in literature. Um, I just noticed in Mrs. Dalloway that they don't mention the Spanish flu once, and it was written three years after the Spanish flu. Um, and so that's what I'm like, after moving through the witch and how she is variously remembered in different ways or remembered a little bit, you know, in a different way, now I want to think about what stories aren't remembered at all or are kind of completely forgotten about. Um, and there's so many narratives of pandemics being forgotten um, that I want to think about next. Hmm. Well, that sounds quite intriguing. So we'll yeah. look out for that. Um, but of course, in the meantime, we can read, listeners can read uh, Feminist Afterlives of the Witch, Popular Culture, Memory and Activism, published by Palgrave Macmillan, that we've been discussing. Bridie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks for having me.